Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the behaviour-based UX research partner for enterprise leaders who need an independent perspective to align hearts and minds, and also the home of New Zealand's first and only world-class human-centred research and innovation lab. If that sounds interesting, you can find out more about that at thespaceinbetween.co.nz. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to keep on top of the latest thinking and important issues affecting the fields of UX research, product management, and design. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of a diverse range of world-class leaders in those fields. My guest today is Satcham Kantamneni. Satcham is the Managing Partner and Chief Experience Officer at UX Reactor, the fastest-growing specialized UX design firm in the United States. At UX Reactor, Satcham leads a global team that helps large and complex B2B enterprises to become truly user-centered innovators through design partnership. Before co-founding UX Reactor in 2015, Satcham was the Managing Director of User Experience and Design at Citrix. In his six years there, Satcham went from being the first designer to growing and leading a UX and design team of over 50 people. Satcham has also previously been a user experience manager at PayPal, where he managed a global team and was responsible for establishing the company's India Design Center, which grew to over 30 people by the time he left for Cisco. The author of User Experience Design, A Practical Playbook to Fuel Business Growth, published in 2022 by Wiley, Satcham is on a mission to raise the profile, depth of understanding and appreciation that business people have for design. Satcham is one of those rare people who can actually do that with over 15 years of experience working and managing corporate design teams, supported by degrees in electrical engineering and human factors, and also an executive MBA from Harvard. It's this combination that undoubtedly gives Satcham a multifaceted and widely relatable perspective on the value of design, one that has been sought out and shared on stages provided by organizations like Google Design, the Silicon Valley Product Management Association, and UXPA International. And now Satcham is here with me for this conversation on Brave UX. Satcham, hello and a very warm welcome to the show. Thank you, Brendan. It's a privilege being here. It's wonderful to have you here, Satcham. And one of the things that I learned about you when I was preparing for today is that you grew up in India and you grew up as a self-described military kid. And this, I believe, has shaped some of your thinking undoubtedly on life, but also on design. But before we get into design, just set the scene for me. What did the life of a military kid look like? <laughs> uh... I think it, it, it was fascinating, and I think uh, in hindsight probably has uh, defined a lot of who I am. Uh, if you really look at the persona of a military kid, they move uh, every three years from uh, a school, a state, a location. They leave friends behind. They are adapting to new cultures, new languages. For those of you who haven't been to India, uh, every state can have a new language. Every state can have its own uh, style and culture, uh, and uh, and they are... 30 or a little less than 30 states right now. So, so it was fascinating. I think uh, every three years uh, was that adaptability was built in. Uh, making new friends was built in. Uh, understanding new cultures was built in. Uh, learning new languages was built in. So there was a lot of those things that came together. While the one thing that was very common was the ethos of a common purpose and a mission for 
you know, all military officers or soldiers that had. Uh, and then you see a lot of different diversity coming in. So I've always been a fan of sports teams and uh, military uh, science, as, as if I call it. Uh, where you see a lot of disparate people from different backgrounds come together with a common purpose and then achieve to great heights. Again, mm -hmm. that's kind of shaped a lot of who I am. Uh, grew up studying a lot of uh, you know military history and now a big student of military science. And uh, interestingly, I, my whole aim uh, in my life was to become an army officer in the Indian military uh, where I had uh, my dad and uh, two uncles. Uh, all as officers. And uh, so I would have been a second generation officer. And uh, But I was colorblind. So I picked the profession where oh. colorblind people go. I picked design. Uh, <laughs> I say that, you know, with the tongue in cheek, but uh, it's fascinating. And then I changed my path and I learned to pivot as always, and then make a different path. That uh, realization or the assessment when you were, sounded like you were looking to join the military and found out that you were colorblind, just how confronting was that moment for you? Was this a path that you were 100% heart set on and, and it was a wild shock to the system? Or were you able to roll fairly easily with that with that bad news? Uh, I think it was a, it was not, it was the closest to a wild shock, I would say, because uh, as a young kid, that's all you prepare for. That's what you learn. That's what you read. Uh, yeah. And uh, in fact, uh, I used to uh, compete uh, in, uh, in shooting. So I, uh, in my uh, specific division, I actually grew, uh, took an All India gold medal uh, in shooting. So I actually was so prepped in the ethos of, uh, you know, so I joined the junior ROTC. I, I was actually all, you know, in the uh, process. So those of you who don't know that, in the Indian, it's called the National Cadet Corps. So you join uh, military training early on in your schooling. Uh, and uh, so it was fascinating in a lot of that ways. But then it seemed like, you know, I just hit a wall because all my friends were planning for that. I mean, the environment was that. And uh, so it took a little bit uh, to kind of readjust, uh, I would say. Uh, and uh, and a good friend helped me, uh, of mine, who actually did, uh, as a very successful Air Force pilot now, uh, shared something. He said, you know, hey, it's a mindset more than... Uh, it's a service. And I, I kind of kept true to that. And I said, you know, it's, it's a mindset of being a soldier, uh, of taking a purpose and then and doing everything you can do to on that purpose. And and I've always treated it that way. And then that has uh, advice has stood by me till date. Mm. Just for some added context for me, just how old were you when you found this out? Uh, I probably was 16 years old. Right. Uh, so uh, right around uh, my final years of high school. And normally in 18 is when you join the academy. Uh, and uh, so that kind of is where uh, you had to readjust. And I said, what am I going to do? So I said, okay, I'm going to go into a professional degree and then uh, studied engineering. And uh, which also was a very uh, interesting journey for me because the pivot wasn't completely done in my mind. And I was like, why am I doing engineering? I never wanted to do engineering. And uh, graduated bottom of my class. So uh, that basically was where engineering left me. And I realized that as an electronics engineer, somebody put a gun to my head and said, you know, would you uh, design a chipset? I would say, shoot me, that's okay. Uh, and uh, <laughs> But that's kind of when I realized that, you know, hey, I, I appreciated more human-centric uh, practices. Theory wasn't what it was. And that's kind of one thing in the military, they always say this. You know, you need field is what teaches you uh, the, the 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 how to kind of be a leader, how to be a, and and that's kind of where I kind of uh, came into the field. And I was very, very, very fortunate enough to uh, 
have both of those, my military background as well as my intention to do uh, something more humane or human, actually not uh, probably the right word. When I got to my grad, grad school program, where I actually was working on uh, the, an, a project by the Air Force Research Laboratory in Dayton, Ohio, and I was doing human uh, factors research. So it kind of both those worlds collided and I obviously graduated top of my class there. No, oh, what, what a remarkable difference it makes when people are invested in what it is that they're doing and they can truly connect with it. Clearly the difference between graduating last in engineering and first in human factors is illustrated by that for you. Sachem, your move to the US happened, I believe, not long after you finished your engineering degree in Hyderabad. And as you were talking about there, you studied human factors. Obviously, coming to the US didn't sound like it was always part of the plan, but it became quite an important part of your story. How did the conversation go with your parents when you wanted to move literally halfway around the world? You know, was this something that they really encouraged you to do or was there some hesitation there from them? I think it was very, uh, they were very supportive of it. And I think uh, partially because my brother was already here. Uh, ah, he, right. uh, and then uh, he actually is a co-founder of UX Reactor. He's mm -hmm. a researcher by training. He's the one who actually did a double majors in computer science and uh, and human factors. So he's the one who shared about human factors. And I had no idea what human factors was uh, or the difference between human factors and human resources was. But then when I came in here and I started exploring the line of that work, so that was obviously uh, was a very different story. Uh, for me, I would say an environment is such a crucial part for anyone's success. Uh, and I say that even in the context of organizations that are trying to be user-centric, but in my case, educational environment in, in the United States uh, is so much more forgiving if people kind of adjust their uh, line of um, research, majors, et cetera. Uh, so I fortunately, you know, India was, Indian education system is not as forgiving uh, in that way. So again, going coming to America from where I was and studying in a university where it was a multidisciplinary program, which allowed an electronics engineer to kind of transition into a, you know, HCI, pro, a human factors program, and kind of do these things that are kind of much more multidisciplinary. I took courses in computer science, psychology, I took courses in uh, design and innovation. So there was just fascinating on how that all kind of connected. Uh, and that also kind of defined who I am and how I uh, look at building teams today. I'm a big fan of uh, the philosophy of being a polymath. Uh, and uh, where you start connecting dots from different places. But again, the, to your question, for me to make that shift was probably the only viable option. And again, remember when I came here, it was dot-com boom. Mm. I landed mm. here and then a year later it was a dot-com bust. So, mm. uh, and, and there was no real UX jobs then. There was, oh, there was human factors job, which was predominantly military. And then as a non-US citizen, the military jobs were all gone. You couldn't apply to them. But again, it was just keeping true to, uh, hey, there's, you only need one job and you need to kind of adjust to that. I still remember I sent out 900 resumes in uh, 30 days. I had to run it like a system. And, uh, you know, I got my first job and, and have never seen behind after that or looked behind. Bit of military pre precision applied to, to that quest of getting a job, it sounds like. You mentioned that your brother um, is a co-founder of UX Reactor, and I believe his name's Prasad. That's right. Yeah, so Prasad, he and you obviously work very closely together. You know, literally you're in business together. You're also brothers, you know, and that 
perhaps comes with its own uh, set of things to navigate uh, in a commercial setting. But I'm curious about him because you mentioned that he had um, come to the US and he was already engaged in comp sci and he was studying human factors. Uh, it's, it seems to me from the outside looking in that um, this is not really a coincidence and perhaps that you have quite a close relationship and you're of a similar mind. Is that an, a, a fair or an unfair way to characterise your relationship? I think it's, it's a very fair way of doing it. And both of us, you know, in fact, uh, one of the things is actually fascinating. So it, uh, we, we both agreed on a lot of things. We both saw the world a lot of similar ways. But again, we, we, the, the, uh, the thing is, we are still two different people. There's two different intentions and two different perspectives that each one gets excited about. So he today runs our academy. So, uh, and one of the things is, again, coming back to the military world, when I started UX Reactor, I said, you know, the, the philosophy of looking for a polymath, the philosophy of uh, looking for people that are multidisciplinary. Uh, today, for example, at UX Reactor, uh, across all our teammates, we have 21 different educational backgrounds. Uh, we have, uh, you know, fashion designers, electronics engineers, mechanical engineers, industrial engineers, industrial designers. So there's a lot of different backgrounds to so just name a few accounting majors. But then the philosophy uh, that came, comes in is like, you know, they all come together with a common human-centered mindset. And then we groom them and they have to be selected to a process of selection. They have to kind of be groomed. So Prasad actually was the guy who actually really got excited about you know, talent and grooming. So he did two years of stint in rural innovation in India, uh, where he left. He was here in the valley for the longest while. Then while he studied that, he said, you know, there's a way to kind of groom, pick and groom the right people. Now, if you look at militaries, they always look for people with aptitude and attitude and give them the skills. And when they, and they drill them enough that they actually can be a fighting force. And that's the same uh, philosophy that we brought together. He ran the academy, I ran the consulting side, and obviously it is where it is today. Uh, but then we realized that we are only building a small design team for just UX Reactor. That's about eight to 10 people a year, but the world needs way more. So then we said, hey, how about generating a thousand designers a year? And that's what Prasad's now focused on uh, with his endeavor called college. Uh, so we both are, uh, you know, very intertwined. In fact, he's right now going through his uh, exec uh, MBA program at uh, Harvard too, uh, as we speak. So it's kind of, we all uh, kind of, our paths are kind of connecting in a lot of different ways. Well, let's go into that program or let's actually set the, set the stage a little earlier on than that. Uh, let's go back to 2013. And you found yourself, I believe, working at Citrix and wondering after spending eight years in design management just what was next for you you know what was the next challenge you were going to get yourself into and you had I believe you were tossing up uh, general management at that stage and wondering if that might be the right thing for you you know if you cast your mind back to that period in time what was it eight years into design management and a leadership position there what was it that wasn't quite sitting right for you I think there were a few things that were not sitting right for me. And as I look back at it, I had 10 years, uh, four years at PayPal and six years at uh, Citrix, where I had a lot to show from a vanity perspective, titles, money, team sizes, but very little to show as impact. So I call it my lost decade. So right around that final, the, the three years before I, or two years before it was truly lost, as I call it, I was thinking, what next? Like, you know, this is not fulfilling and fulfilling in a lot of ways because I'll give you an example. I was running the centralized design group at Citrix, five different general managers that I was supporting. 
uh, all the way from product lines that are you know multi-billion dollars in revenue to product lines which were just about starting. The largest product line that I was supporting at that point in the six years I was there had four different general managers. Every general manager that came in was design enlightened, but not design prioritized. And what I would say is like, they got design. They understood like, hey, design is big. You know, if they, you see apples, you see the Airbnb, you see the impact of, but they're not really prioritizing that in their impact. In fact, one of the general managers had told me like, Satyam, why would I invest in design when I can get a dollar uh, in sales will give me $10 back. And he said, you know, so his literal question was like, I can put in more in sales and I'll get 10 back. And I couldn't really articulate back to him that design would give him 100 or 50 or even $2, as a matter of fact. So for me, it was like, what the heck? I mean, like, I'm just sitting here and like, those who want to get design, we'll do design, those who don't. And then I look back internally, again, no offense meant to the team, but the team itself was very happy kind of delivering on a roadmap. Uh, product managers would define the roadmap and designers would design around it. It's just, everybody seemed to be happy where they are, except for me. And then uh, that's when I also went to business school and I said, okay, maybe design is not what it is. You know, I aspire to be a CEO, so I want to go on the product path. I want to kind of lead. I see more product managers being uh, CEOs and uh, then fewer design leaders being CEOs. So I went to business school saying that, go, let me learn other skills than the functional skills of, you know, leading design. And that was a fascinating experience because I was sitting with our 100 plus uh, execs from different companies. Uh, some had, you know, maybe a few hundred dollars in uh, budgets to uh, a few who had multi-billion dollars in annual budgets. And you're sitting down with them and you're talking to them and, they, and you see the problems that they're discussing are all design problems. They, they don't know where to invest. They don't know how to experiment. They want to innovate. They uh, look at digitization uh, as a big cornerstone for uh, you know, moving things forward, but they just don't think about what we do as uh, you know, understanding our human-centered design as, as a technique or a method because they don't even know who to call because there's no degree in human-centered program uh, design. So I came back like saying, like, hey, there's a lot of business problems out there that need design as a uh, accelerator and uh, and I said, I want to double down on design. I'm not going to go into any other field than the field that I have spent so much time in. Uh, and then I traded a couple more years at Citrix before uh, uh, I decided that, you know, maybe the, the shift has to be from outside. And then UX Reactor was my experiment uh, to kind of go at that problem. I understand that when you first got back after finishing the Harvard program, that you had a series of conversations with other senior design leaders about whether or not they had PL responsibility. And the conversation that came back from them surprised you somewhat. What was it about their responses that, that surprised you? See, I think... And this is true with even today, right? So I ask a lot of uh, design leaders, and in, in fact, even business leaders, I ask design leaders the question like, you know, hey, what impact are you driving in your organization? And the most important uh, uh, or the most frequent answer that I get is, uh, hey, I delivered on time and I delivered all these releases and we are we designed on these releases. And my point is, good, you did that. But can you ever tell me, like, how have you improved the experience of a certain user? How have you improved the business of a certain division? And they say, I don't control that because the PMs tell me what to do. And I'm like, who chose the factor that the PMs tell you what to do? And then the answer is like, you know, it, many times it's self-inflicted. Uh, on this other side, I look at business leaders and I say, you know, why don't you have design in this conversation? And they're like, I, I don't know how, I mean, uh, I 
they are very tac- you know they are in their mind it's like hiring architect to build a, a building versus hiring a painter to paint that building unfortunately the profession has become the painter more so than actually the architect the architects are still engineers in a technology world the architects still are product managers the architects still are the senior leaders uh, and unfortunately because you have been painted into that painter no pun intended corner it's very hard for people to walk out and saying hey i i i'm painting for nothing i actually should not even paint this room shouldn't even be here but then to ask those questions you need the right team around you you need the right uh, process around you and then when you don't have the team or the process you kind of end up at the same place which is like you know hey you just don't have the weapons to fight this war so might as well not fight it it's almost as of what you're articulating there this there's, there's likely there's more complexity to what i'm about to say uh, in reality but it's almost as if what you're saying is that our our gaze our perspective our belief in ourselves our acceptance of certain constraints is actually putting our field into somewhat of a crisis where other areas of businesses aren't really seeing us at the level of that architect they're only seeing us as those painters absolutely absolutely again think about a boot camp i'll just give you and this is something i talk about a lot go look at any product management good boot camp out there right and these are boot camps again they i, I there's a different topic all about boot camps and how good or bad they are but someone says that i can make you a product manager and i'm going to teach you user research i'm going to teach you wireframing i'm going to teach you uh you know a high level uh usability testing or user research and that's it so basically you know you have disempowered suddenly taken skills which are typically defined for a designer is now defined for a product manager now on the flip side you look at an uh, front end uh, engineer right they actually are defining the css they are defining the design system they are defining a lot of the nuances there so you are again taking away power so this is a profession that on a craft level is getting impacted on both sides now that's kind of what's happening on the ground but let's forget all that i'll i'll, I'll give you a paint a different picture for you right now and the picture is who in the organization can talk to users define the problem or frame the problem prototype that solution and then take it back to users and often times it's when you start looking at these skills it actually ends up at someone who's in a design line a free area of work you can run rapid experiments you can prototype a lot of things but when you start looking at that if i had asked that same question about 100 years back that's the definition of an innovator is design teams becoming innovators absolutely not right is design team has become crafts people so i call it the small d design in my book but the big d design is what the orgs are actually willing to pay for they are looking and talking about like how do we experiment how do we evolve what do we adjust what are the pain points and then you start looking at the other side i, I talk about this let's be more tactically right and i say this in the organization design of a culture like pick any five people in a company randomly and then ask them these four questions who's the top users for that the company cares about what are the top pain points what are you doing about those pain points and how do you know you're going to measure that you're going to you that you've made an impact ask those five people and then you'll see that if all five say the same thing and they are consistent and they are accurate you have a highly user centered organization now what happens is most people would say different things now who owns that data the design team the researchers are the ones who own that data they're giving that data they are the ones who need to propagate and project that in the whole organization so the empathy of the organization increases this is where you start seeing the the misfires of the process and the leadership every leader out there every business leader out there wants to grow 
they won't, and how do you grow? You grow by knowing your customer. You're increasing your adoption, your retention, your satisfaction, the efficiency, engagement. These are the metrics that you know business leaders care about. They want to go after new markets. I mean, as a user researcher, you can study all the all the unintended ways your product is being used, and you can discuss like three or four different markets that you can go after. Right? And these are nuances that kind of are lost in this line of work, and therefore we just don't get to that achievement where I talked about, you know, hey, multi, multi-billion dollars of investment just goes down the drain. There are so many different pathways that we could go down here. I want to go down this pathway. You've spoken of in the past that in Silicon Valley, there's a bit of a bubble as far as the understanding of and appreciation of design and that outside of the Valley, many business leaders are still trying to figure out exactly what design is and how design can be applied and who the right people are to bring into their organizations to help them to do that. So how for the people that are outside of the valley, so the people that are listening to this that don't necessarily work in a really mature design organization, how does that reality change the nature of the type of conversation that they need to have with other leaders in their businesses in order to help those leaders to understand the untapped potential that exists in the building currently? See, I think I have a fundamental philosophy there. And the philosophy is we can try to, un- we can try to explain what we do as much as we want. People won't get it. We need to show it to them. And I think the show comes from a lot of angles. And as I teach the next generation of uh, designers and researchers, I often say, like, you know, there's there's an awesome Hollywood movie called Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, again, it's a military movie. It talks about how, uh, you know, it's a movie, uh, I would call it, uh, around how they took down Osama bin Laden uh, in uh, as, an, as a military ops. And I say the person in that movie that actually gets the least amount Everyone talks about how they went into a foreign country and how they kind of ran an operation and came out fairly successful. But the person in there who actually gets the least amount in comparison of, uh, you know, uh, visibility is uh, the intelligence analyst. Uh, It's a lady in this case, uh, somebody who actually uh, was much more junior, uh, looks at uh, the data, says that there's something going on here, and then is willing to put her neck out there and say there's something going on here. Uh, and then finally, it kind of moves up the chain of command, and then some people realize there there is something going on there. A lot of times, designers and researchers are very similar in a profession that we have to stick our neck out there, and it only comes when you truly are committed to the vision of like, hey, I'm going to make people's life easier, right? Every user has pain points and have uh, has opportunities. Now, what do you do about it? How do you track it? If you're if you're being user centered, that means you're talking to them, you're empathizing with them, you're observing them. You understand where the pain points are. And once you know the pain points, then you can rapidly, uh, you know, uh, iterate on it. The prototyping tools are a dime a dozen. You can then take it up the chain of command and talk to people. Now, again, it also needs an environment that allows uh, for uh, an organization that people are willing to experiment, right? You know, the salesperson can equally have an idea. The finance person can equally have an idea. But you need to bring an organization that the org kind of leverages that. Now, to your question, whether it's Silicon Valley or outside, Most times we have the data, we have the power, we just have to kind of take it in a format and talk about it. Like, And the urban myth is uh, uh, when Steve Jobs came in his second coming at uh, Apple, the iPhone prototype was already in place somewhere. It wasn't that he came in and said, let's build an iPhone. He actually uh, sponsored it and made sure that it it finessed, it got better and, and so on and so forth. Till date, it's the most successful product that they've built. 
And that's often what happens to innovation in a lot of organization. When so somebody has that insight, somebody is seeing that data, it's just that they are not able to leverage it and build it. Now, when you have a powerful, it just takes one person to kind of drive that. When you have a powerful you know, environment, it, it actually uh, you know, drives that forward. But again, the smaller the organization, the faster it is. So I don't think uh, a lot of, I don't think it's, I often think it's the people that are their biggest enemy. Uh, because if the people are right, the process, the environment, the, the mindsets all automatically follow along. Uh, and uh, small or large in the valley or outside the valley, uh, a successful company is defined by the people that it has. And that's kind of where we've been focusing a lot of our energy. And once the people are aligned in that mindset, everything else follows. Okay, so following that thread along and holding a mind mindset, I've heard you previously say something and I'll quote you now. You've said everything starts from understanding the user and their experience and then looking at the design and technology, which unfortunately is the other way around as most companies start with technology first and they go into design and then how the users will use it. So you come from a a mixed perspective in the sense that you have engineering, human factors and business languages that you can speak. So if you were speaking to, and you might have a real example, probably do, of a CEO or a C-suite here, and you're trying to help them to see a better way, that, that way of starting with the user, that they could be approaching the solving of their business problems and their way that they create products, how would you help them to understand that better way? I think Simon Sinek says this really well. He says, start with the why, right? And why in a lot of the cases is because, and I would say uh, if, you, if you remove the why and start with the user, it's again, very similar. I'm having conversations right now with leaders, in fact, in the last 24 hours, and they're like, hey, our product is, uh, has all the capabilities. This is exactly, I'm, I'm quoting exactly as I've had a conversation. Our product has all the capabilities, has all the features. It just needs a good design. And I'm like, okay, so what does that mean? It's like, oh, uh, that's, I, I need to sell. Uh, I've been told my competition is much more uh, better experience. So let's kind of build a better design. So again, it's the fact that they have a technology. Now they want the design on top of it. And while we are having the conversation on the design, we are actually having conversation on the user now, what's the likelihood of that succeeding? I would say maybe 10%. It will get them UI design, but then they will come back. Their competition will do something else. And uh, they will be again back into the same uh, situation. On the flip side, if they knew like, hey, this is the user I'm building for. These are the pain points that they have. This is where the competition is kind of doing better or worse. And I want to nail it on this you know, uh, point of uh, view. And then I want to build a good experience around it. Then I want to build a design that kind of drives that experience. And then I'm going to go find the technology that's going to kind of make that happen. It makes it so much more peaceful in everyone's life. Now, what's happening is that most of the tech companies, unfortunately, are led by tech leaders because it's tech. Uh, and tech leaders, their strength uh, and their superpower is tech. So unfortunately, you build the tech and then you kind of start dealing with the other issues like you can build a great technology that gives you great analytics, but if you haven't thought about the migration experience from moving from your competition to you, there you go. You're not going to get those customers uh, because they've spent a lot of time and money to kind of build that. So again, there's all these nuances that kind of come into the picture. But if you know your user, you know why you're doing it, and you know the plan of attack. And I always say this and, and it's in, in the research world, it's what insight do you want to invest your money on? 
right? And again, every product out there, okay, let me actually, before that, I'll say something else. A good mentor of mine said this. He said, so, because I would say, hey, somebody else is already doing this when I'm looking at a product. And he said, Satyam, as long as the problem is there, no matter how many people do it, it's still a problem. Right. And I think that was a very strong thing. So that's why when I come back to it, it doesn't matter how many people in the world are building, a, let's say, an online travel site or online travel booking site. As long as you see that there are pain points for the guests as well as the hoteliers or whoever it is in that ecosystem, you can go build another product and then and get a shot at it. And that's true with so many products. But again, that only is if you start with the user and then the experience. But again, if you go back to our whole profession, as it's defined as UX design, it's it's in that semantics itself. It's you start with the user before you go to the experience and then you go to the design. Somewhere in this process, the UX went away and design came in. And I also blame this to a lot of what I call a lot of designers wanting to call themselves UX. In fact, I hate it. I hate it when everyone says I'm a UI UX designer. It's like since when? It's like, are you, it's like somebody saying I'm a... I'm a constable and I'm an inspector. I mean, are you a constable or are you an inspector? Because they're two different mindsets. Which one are you? Are you a UI designer or are you a UX designer? Or am I a hybrid? Or like whichever way it is. Then you're a product designer. But then when people start mixing that because UX pays more than UI, you are doing a disservice to yourself. You're doing a disservice to the profession. And then you see the companies also going and asking for I want a UI UX designer. And I'm like, man, this is kind of becoming a complete uh, free-for-all uh, and it's a mad house at this point. Mm, there are certainly some issues as the field continues to grow and scale and the wide variety of backgrounds that people come into the field. It seems that it has become more murky as to how we define what it is that we do and the value that that creates. And there are many, many different perspectives there. What is it that for you, what is it that the inherent value of a UX designer represents? Like what is it that, if you're drawing a line between UX and design, wh what is that boundary? How does that boundary look? See, I think that I, I, I'll define it in a different frame, right? I'll define it in, in the book, I call it the experience value chain. The three levels of value that you can create in, in using the power of UX. Uh, you can create on a screen level, you can create on a product level, you can create on an organization level, right? When you create it on a screen level, yeah, it could be called UI design, right? When you create it on a product level, that's where you're starting to look at product experience. You start to look at ecosystem. One of the strategies that I say from a business standpoint that I, in fact, coach a lot of my clients, I say, go the, leverage the encirclement strategy. And what's the encirclement strategy? Again, there's a little bit of military coming in, strategy coming in a design. Encirclement strategy in our world is not only identify the core user of your product, find three or four other users around them and encircle that user. Because if they have to cancel, they have to ask three more people to cancel, right? So for example, if I'm building it for a patient, I need to talk about the caregiver. If I'm talking about, you know, if you're doing online travel uh, booking, if you're talking about a certain guest, you need to talk about the guest friends who are going with them. So you start now encircling the other users and solving their pain points in a way that it's kind of much more sticky. It's not net new. It's what Apple does so well, which is why they are 10 times more valuable than a Samsung that makes every product that Apple does and more. It's because you just see the stickiness that comes together. And that's kind of what I mean by like, you know, when you start looking at these nuances of focusing on the user and then driving that. 
but a lot of people forget it because in the pursuit of getting screens and timelines and so on and so forth the screens is kind of taking more priority over the product and the organization and therefore it kind of gets messed up and i would say 80% of all practitioners are still working on a screen level and then the remaining are kind of where it trickles up org level there are very few people who are saying the whole org will be you know built into a user centered organization so i think there's so much more op- op- opportunity and i call it ex- an experientially transformed org so there's so much opportunity i think as is, i as much as i think that there are weaknesses in our how we are operating the opportunity is huge the world is rapidly digitizing the world is kind of becoming i mean everybody has like at least a dozen different products that they digital products they interact with there's so many more ways of kind of making it better technology is getting more and more commoditized and powerful so i think it's just up to us designers to now bring this world together and then it's just fascinating on how things will evolve i've heard you talk about opportunities before and you've made a delineation between what you consider to be design problems which are the how might ways of this world and you consider those to be the table stakes of design and perhaps uh, I'm not drawing too much of a long bow here but I get the sense that you feel that a lot of our screen focused or product level focused activity is revolving around those how might ways those design problems and it's and you in your way of framing it it's actually the design opportunities which you've called the what ifs where the real value lies so what's an example of the kind of design opportunity that you've been speaking about previously so i can give you an example of a product that we designed and and this is a product that came to us early on and uh, today is the fastest growing in their line of work uh, when they were working with us they were double digit million dollar in valuation today they are a decacon means 10 uh, million or 10 billion or higher uh, in valuation a design problem i'll just define the things and, and the, uh, how i've defined a design a, a problem or a pain point is something that the user is dealing with and they can articulate it in a good way or a bad way but they're seeing the pain a uh, opportunity is where a user is seeing the pain but they don't see that as a pain right so for example if everybody agrees everybody puts a username and password and and they and they forget the password they see that as oh yeah this is me forgetting the password it is it's 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 not a problem in the technology it's just that i forgot the password the opportunity is like how might we like if uh, 50 like in paypal forgot password was a big deal uh, there was a lot of people that were forgetting the password so if that is the problem and we make that problem go away that's an opportunity for us to kind of make that problem go away so that's how we define problems and opportunities now i'll give an example of how we work with this one company that's doing really well we were looking at building up the sales experience for that particular product and so automotive sales and the problem is like hey how fast can i put a deal sheet how can the deal sheet is something like if you are a customer and you want to buy a car uh and you have some variables you're playing with like what's your uh, monthly interest going to be what uh, or your interest going to be how much what's your monthly payment going to be how much i'm going to down payment am i trading and not trading it's all those variables are thought through and i give you a, a deal sheet saying that for this vehicle i'm willing to give you this offer that process is about 3 hour process there's a sales manager sitting in one room who's trying to figure out like what should i do what can i give what can i not give what would it's basically a whole process of going back and forth and negotiating what we said is okay that's we can make that much more digital we can that's a pain point let's go make that work but then what we saw as an opportunity is what if we took all of that data and then we uh, identified like we know what 
other people have paid so far. So we know the propensity of payment as based on the other people that have bought the same car. We know what our inventory is coming in from tomorrow. So because in their mind, they're looking at, hey, if I have 10 cars here and I'm getting 100 more tomorrow, I might as well get this inventory out. But if I have 10 cars today and I have no more coming for the next you know, six months, I, this is this is prime uh, commodity. So I think there's all these nuances. So we built a heat map of saying, what's the likelihood that, that this person will, so it will have the variable of the person that's buying the car, the variable of who other people that have bought that car, variable of what other inventory is actually in there, variable of what other things has this person purchased. Now, I'm not talking like an architect. Remember that. I'm not talking like a designer. Now I'm talking. So you start thinking about how the person is framing it. And now we came back and said, this is an algorithm that needs to be written up. And we need to define an, a heat map that can be shown to the sales manager. And then let's kind of perfect that system so we can now make that three-year process into a 30-minute process. Right. If you are doing your services with the uh, with the dealership and you're paying about you know ten thousand dollars in your per car over your lifetime of your car, I'm okay giving you a five hundred dollar discount today to kind of buy a car which no one else will get, because my data tells me that, and that's a design opportunity where you start looking at hey what can we do and solve the problem and that was patented that has been now built. And and when you start adding small, small, small things in every part of every user's journey, that's when a company becomes hyper successful. You've talked a little bit earlier on about mindsets that the business leaders take towards design, but here it sounds like you're touching on the mindset that designers take to the, the work of realizing the value of design. Is this a evolution of mindset? Is this something that can be process driven so that while we're doing the day-to-day of what we're, we've come used to doing, we can add on uh, something else to our practice so that we can explore these what-ifs? Like, How do you make this, perhaps at UX Reactor, how do you make this a real part of what it means to do design at UX Reactor? I think it's, it's, it's an environment that constantly asks why are you doing something and how are you going to measure that you've done it. If, if people can articulate those two things in anything they do in their life, as a matter of fact, it actually makes it so much more clear and objective, are you getting there or not, right? If I, someone says I'm designing five screens, but what's the, what are those five screens? What impact will it make? How are you gonna measure that when you build those screens? That's okay, that's still UI design, that'll deliver value. But that mindset of like, hey, is this the best I can do or can I do something else? Is there a bigger problem I can go at? And same thing as I would, so I think that foundational mindset of saying, what outcome am I trying to achieve? What measure am I going to make that? And can I make that a bigger measure? How can I make it a bigger measure? Uh, often a question I ask anybody, as a matter of fact, not only designers, I say, don't ask for a higher salary if you cannot articulate how you're making 10 times that for the company, right? And uh, in our case, you know, don't ask for a higher bill rate if you cannot articulate how you're delivering 10 times the value to the organization that's leveraging you. Because if you can't do that, Everything else is just like fuzziness. Like I should be paid more. Why? Because Joe Schmo on neighbor is kind of getting paid more. No one cares. But if you can articulate that, you know, hey, I'm doing this and I get need to pay more because I'm generating, you know, I want to get paid 100K because uh, I'm generating a million dollars of value and this is how I've generated the value. Everybody wants to pay you more, right? It's a win-win for everyone. So I think that's the nuances that kind of gets missed out. A lot of times we define the, the skill and the method more important as the outcome we achieve. And that mindset, that's one small mindset shifts everything. 
because you know it's unfortunate that today in the tech industry as it's kind of going through a contraction i'm seeing a lot of designers being let go i'm seeing a lot of researchers being let go and i'm like man it takes a ton of time to kind of get a research up and running uh, to understand the market understand the company and so on and so forth that means business leaders don't get it neither do the practitioners get it so it's kind of a free for all at this point uh, and it's unfortunate but i think uh, it'll it's a matter of time well let's touch on the layoffs now seeing as you've brought them up recently as you know as you've just mentioned there've been a lot of uxs that have been let go across research and design and that's a really unfortunate situation for the people that have found themselves in those positions. You've previously said building the right people, the right process around user experience, the right environment and the right mindset, all four of these have to be well curated. It's a profession, it's not a skill. Leaders have to approach it that way just like they would building the marketing profession. And I think the context that you were speaking of leaders there was in terms of the wider business leaders, but I might be wrong, so correct me if I am. So my question is, what is the distinction that you're drawing between a skill and a profession? And do you believe that our inability, and maybe I'm shouldering too much of the responsibility here on the profession of UX, but do you believe that it's had any bearing our ability to paint ourselves as a profession on how design and research has been impacted by these layoffs? I think that's a loaded question, but I'll try to uh, and answer that and, and, uh, from my perspective. And I'll give you a story. I was, I was flying uh, to a destination and I was sitting and, and next to me was a CEO of another company, uh, a successful e-commerce company. And then he asked me, uh, you know, obviously with courtesy, like, what do you do? I said, I do product design. I do, uh, you know, I run a firm that does UX design. It's like, oh, UX. I have a few UXs on my team. And I didn't know how to react to that. And partially because he commoditized, I have a few UXers on my team, right? And I'm like, you know, hey, would you, is that how he would define marketing? Is, is that how he would define finance? Like I have a few finance people on my team, Right. So it, it just seemed like, you know, like suddenly the whole skill was commoditized, like, you know, hey, I'm going to go find. And then you have companies out there that are willing to give you a designer in anywhere in the world. And I'm like, design is such a critical mindset. It's like uh, we have commoditized it, like, you know, for five dollars, you can get a logo on Fiverr. So that's why I'm saying it's getting hyper commoditized. So people are like, yeah, I have four people, I have three people who do that thing do what thing? I mean, that thing can actually define your company and then make you a, a billionaire or a, or a bankrupt person. That thing is so important. But that's kind of what I mean by a skill versus a profession. A profession has a, a career. A profession has leaders. A profession has a, a focus. A profession has a lot of different skills that need to come together. That's what I mean by a profession. And I think marketing is a profession. It's taught in business schools. You know, uh, same way as engineering is a profession, it's taught in, in, uh, in schools, but design or experience design or user experience design is still a, a profession that is coming together as an amalgamation of people and skills. That's where I kind of am drawing up a line saying that the next decade, it has to be a, a profession. And experience, as I, I say in my book, I say it needs to be led by just like a chief marketing officer leads marketing. Uh, experience needs to be led by a chief experience officer reporting to the CEO of a company. And why is that the case? Because one of the biggest killers of great experiences is siloing in an organization. 
when professional services doesn't want to talk to customer success, doesn't want to talk to product, doesn't want to talk to sales, or if they talk, they talk about their silos of their roadmaps. But who together is kind of saying that from a customer perspective, they really don't care whether, don't ship your org structure to them and say, hey, professional services go for this or go to customer service for this and go to self-service product for this. They really don't care. They want the same experience and the same level of quality and thought process and all of them. And that's kind of where it gets screwed up a lot of times. And that's why you need a single person that drives it across the whole organization. And that's kind of the third level, as I was saying, which is the organizational level you know, value creation. Unfortunately, the only person that sees that is the CEO. And if the CEO is, is a, comes, comes from a non-design or non-experience background, again, as I called out earlier in a conversation that they are experience enlightened but not experience prioritized because they don't even know how to prioritize what to prioritize which people to hire which processes to put together etc in fact if you study military coups in most world the first thing they do is they bring intel into their purview because they want to know what the intel is or intelligence as uh in the uh, to kind of say, what are people saying? What are uh, you know your enemies saying? What are your detractors saying? So because that's the first thing to keep control of your system. But whereas when you're letting go of all your researchers, that means you don't think of them as Intel. And that's kind of, or the researchers are not stepping up to be the analysts that I kind of called out in the example of the Zero Dark Thirty. So again, it could be a two-way uh, process there, but that is where the unfortunate thing works. And but again, when this whole system comes together, that's magic. And that's the hypothesis that we started UX Reactor in. And as we work with companies and we see that magic come together in places, it automatically kind of works itself out in a good way. You mentioned that my previous question was loaded. So here's, here's another loaded or intentionally provocative question then, which is following on from this school of thought that we're being seen as surplus to re requirements, you know, the intel isn't being valued and that's why we're being let go. And... The question is, if we were producing the level of value that we like to talk about in design that we are capable of doing, would we be let go in the way that we've been let go? So I'll, I'll answer that in two ways. And I think I probably will take one step back. I don't think people are targeting research or design itself. They're letting go of divisions. They're letting go of areas of uh, focus. And through that, you're letting go of the whole group that works on it, which typically is design, engineering, product, et cetera. So the whole group is being let go. But uh, what I'm saying as a prov provocative manner is if you they, that group was being user-centered, they would have figured out either to do it really well or to kind of shut that thing way back when, right? Because even going back to your leaders and say there's nothing here to kind of focus on or there's no, they're there, that's okay. That's also what research tells you. Don't waste your money. Right, but the point is, you should not be at someone else's whims and fancy of saying this. This is uh, this should be done or not done, right? Like, for example, what problem was Metaverse trying to solve, right? If the whole Metaverse division was being cut, then with that goes a lot of people. But I would actually put it back to you know the great smart product people and the great smart research and design people that you should have run experiments. You should have run and quickly figured out that you know, this is not working. Now, again, if it's someone's whims and fancy that I'm going to build a net new thing, that is my purview, which I call it the leader's uh, privilege, then, okay, that's what it is. And I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, people are, uh, you know, caught up in that circle. But I'm still seeing a lot of people that our design team has been seen as a support arm. And then with that 
investment goes the support arm. So I think that's kind of where the unfortunate part is. But I would actually would challenge that, again, there's so many people out there who are designers and researchers. Researchers have insights. Designers have, uh, you know, prototyping skills. If those two get together, or in fact, if they are the same person, that can actually be a much more, that's innovation have waiting to happen. That's a net new business model that can happen. So I would say this is actually maybe an opportunity for some of those enlightened ones that were not given the right environment to go and do and make your own business. Because the cost of entrepreneurship today is zero to start anything. So might as well go and do it if you believe strongly and you have that insights around the users that you are, you know, you've been studying all this while before you let go. It sounds like what you're saying is while we don't bear all of the responsibility of the decisions that have been going on, for example, you mentioned metaverse, you know, that might be the leadership's privilege or fancy to create something around that, that we can still get out in front of some of the insights or lack of insights that we see in a particular problem space and and help to guide the company's decision making by being real about what it is that we're seeing and not being, and this is my own intentionally provocative language, but not being asleep at the wheel and just taking the paycheck and not thinking critically about how the activity that we're doing in the day-to-day is actually actually laddering back up to some sort of longer-term, meaningful, sustainable business goal. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I would say metaverse is a technology. If you had come to that conclusion from talking to the user, then the experience and then the design and then metaverse came to it, go absolutely. That it's a matter of time that, you know, it, it, that could have been resolved. I still think metaverse as a construct can help communities of people getting educated together while they are disparately or in, in different parts of the world. Now, that's a problem where users have, like, you know, when pandemic, people were all isolated studying on Zoom. Now, if you actually had an avatar and you were studying in a classroom and you were getting the same experience. But again, how does the teacher know whether you're paying attention or not? Those are all nuances that kind of that other user problems that are there. But I think the longer story is if you follow the user and you kind of go through that cycle, innovation becomes easy, your clarity becomes easy, your purpose becomes easy. But when you go the other way of saying, hey, someone said I'm in Metaverse team or I'm in that team or this team, and now I'm going to figure out how to kind of figure out what value I can add, that's always finding it the other way around, which is much harder. Well, let's go into disconnects, which you've been touching on there. I listened to something that someone else once asked you, and it was for your thoughts on why, I think they were a researcher, why they were having trouble convincing their business to invest in a design initiative that would save their company money. I felt what you told them was deeply insightful and what it is that you suggested to them to do was to take things back to first principles and you spoke with spoke to them about needing to understand whether the company they were working at is cost focused or profit focused so why is it important for us to understand when we peel back everything that our companies are doing whether or not they're cost focused or profit focused so I think a company that is cares about every dollar that is spent, you go and tell them I can save you a dollar. You know, they would love to listen to it. And this is again, I'll, I'll share a different construct in that con. And then companies that are focused around, uh, you know, top line, which is like, I want to get more revenue in, right? You go and say, hey, I have a new business model that actually can open up a new thing. And this is, this is again, as a re- I'll give you an example. If a business leader wants to know which markets to go into, they just need to call their researcher and say, can you tell me all the unintended ways that our product is being used? 
And if the researcher is not able to answer that, shame on the researcher. But if it's a good researcher, knows that, they get that data and say, these are the five or six different ways that our product is getting used in unintended ways. Now, you, all you need to do is run five experiments and see which one can you build it out. This is like Zoom identifying that doctors are using uh, or go to meeting as when I was at Citrix, saying that doctors are using their uh, web conferencing product for uh, patient collaboration. Honestly, it's not HIPAA compliant, but now suddenly if you make it a HIPAA compliant, which is like privacy and data sharing and so on and so forth, that could be a billion dollar product right there, right? And so that's, that's kind of where opportunities come in. And so when you actually work in tandem and kind of magic starts kind of coming together. The thing I often have now started to believe and I often share it is you want to be in the business of painkillers, not vitamins. If somebody has a pain, and there could be an organization, it could be a business, it could be whoever, you want to kind of talk in that language. If you tell somebody, it's good to talk to users, it's good to kind of understand what it is, no one's going to listen to you. Because vitamins, everyone agrees, but you know it's a problem that's later. When you deal with the pain, we'll deal with it. But suddenly, if you're dealing with that pain right now, if you have a bad toothache, that Tylenol, you're willing to spend $30 on it right now, even if it is like a dollar a piece. Right. And because that's how important a painkiller is. Now, if you are able to articulate into your organization, what is the user problem? Is it an adoption problem? That is it a retention problem? Is it a productivity or efficiency problem? Is it a satisfaction problem? If you know what that problem is, because every business has users and you need to just articulate what is that pain point that they have. And, and then you just need to say, OK, how can I increase and make that better or more effective? And then suddenly we are talking that language, we are more effective. So again, whether it is cost focus or top line focused, or you're talking about you know adoption, if you're top line focused, you're worried about uh, adoption. If you are uh, cost focused, you're, you're worried about you know how can I do more with less? And so these are all things that come into picture because every organization is grappling with that. And if, I were, if anything I learned in business school is that every business leader is trying to find that secret sauce to kind of be better than the competition and then be the, the loud one for their uh, competition, sorry, for their use customers. And a lot of that data comes from this team of people, especially in the, in the product-led growth world. And which is why I'm like, you know, hey, we just need to step up a little bit and then there's a lot more to take. So follow me along here. And this is me just playing back for, for you what I'm hearing and some of the dots that I believe are joining in my own head about some of the things that you've said. So understanding whether it's cost-focused or profit or top-line focused helps you to decide which one of those business objectives your design activities or research activities should align with. So you talked about you know, adoption, retention, satisfaction, engagement, and I think efficiency as well. And the next level there, which is once you've, you're clear on what those are, is the framing, the, the way that you frame your language in terms of the articulating those problems is one around painkillers as opposed to vitamins. So you need to be able to really put your finger into to that sore point and tell a story of how making that sore point go away and delivering on that business objectives, which has been laddered up by the core purpose of the organization or their core focus is going to work. And that those things should create a compelling picture for people to at least listen more openly to what it is that you have to say. Absolutely. Very well articulated, Brent. Thank you. Oh, it's, it's good because I was going to ask you because you have you previously had said something to the effect of uh, focus designers need to focus on creating the right value for the right opportunities. But 
having listened to you articulate all of those things, they, everything uh, has fallen into place for me there, which is really great. I'm mindful of time and I do want to come to something that I thought was really brave that you had spoken about in your practice at UX Reactor, and that is to do with the opinions of senior leaders. And you've previously said in relation to your engagements at UX Reactor, and I'll quote you again now, you've said, most times the company has a person with a senior rank who actually has an opinion. And one of the things we do when we run workshops is we say, keep your opinions aside, or if you have an opinion, state it as an opinion, state your assumptions as an assumption. So when you're talking with senior leaders who are involved in these workshops, whether they're the C-suite or VPs or whatever it may be, are you that candid when you tell them this? We are candid but respectful because if someone says users want this, and I say, is that a fact or is it an assumption? And I and, and again, I don't ask them right then. We actually every workshop we do in a discovery level, we say there'll be a lot of things discussed here, uh, and then and when we discuss these things, the one thing that we will have a filters on is that a fact or is that assumption? Right. And if it's an assumption, it could be an opinion or it could be an assumption as a hypothesis, which is fine. Hypothesis are completely fine. That's what I'll, that feeds a lot of innovation. However, a hypothesis needs to be tested. And, and so now as a researcher, I would say that becomes an RQ, a research question. And so that gets fed into that sheet. And then we kind of track that as an opinion. What you don't want is like, hey, Joe, who's the CEO of the company, said this. He knows it better because, uh, you know, he's been there for a while. And let's treat that as a fact. And that's the fastest way to kind of go in the wrong direction and, and eventually kind of make the thing. Now, oftentimes, leaders don't throw their opinion as they generally believe in it. But the question is, when you ask them the question, is that an assumption or is that a fact? If it's a fact, give evidence, and then we'll take that. If, and so most times that makes them think, like, who told me this? Where did I pick this up? Did I read it up? Did I listen to it? Did I observe this? And that just brings a level of deeper thinking because oftentimes this is what unfortunately uh, biases and lies, how it may messes with our you know, capabilities. If you say a lie hundred times to everyone, you start believing that's, that's the truth, right? And that's the same thing is like most founders who come to us, they already have been saying that in their echo chamber. So they've been believing that, yeah, I mean, confirmation bias happens. And then you're like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is the way to do it. The last thing we want is they spend a few million dollars and then go nowhere. You don't want to build a product that actually is beautiful, but has no, uh, you haven't thought through the other side. As I said, the encirclement of why would someone else come in? So again, I do have that conversation very clearly and we have the conversation. And sometimes it, you know, it becomes a joke that, you know, when you're having the drinks at the end of the day, everyone's now starting assumption or, uh, or is this the fact it kind of becomes a joke of the night when you're kind of uh, talking, but that's good because that now is the mindset that we want to apply because in fact, in larger organizations, if a VP, someone with a VP title or anything higher, if they say something, it suddenly becomes so much more important. One of the things in military that you learn is rank has its privileges, but doesn't mean that rank is the only one, who, the, the senior most person is the most creative person. We are in a creative profession. So I think at that point, you'd keep the rank on the, you know, you'd check the rank in the door. But the fact is that creativity can come from anyone, whoever kind of sees something, which is why you see entrepreneurship can happen at any age, at any time. And it has nothing to do with your seniority, nothing to do with your uh, titles. And, and I think we need to make sure that we understand that and then we leverage that. But yes, we are candid about it. 
because if it's not if it's an assumption we put there but if somebody no one is trying to screw themselves and screw a company by saying outright lie so they often say yeah i think that's a hypothesis and that's okay we take that we write that on the list and we move on right so hypotheses are fine but don't state a hypothesis as a fact well, I imagine what you're actually trying to help them to do is solve a major pain point, pro- probably the largest pain point that any founder could face, which is uh, investing or betting the company on a uninformed or an assumed direction. So the way that you contextualize that challenge and that it leads to, like you said, often it will lead to some laughs at the end of the day when you're sharing a drink together. I think that means that you've really hit the right note in terms of the respectful approach to helping people to see uh, that a lot of what we think about is, is coming from a place of assumption and requires further investigation. Absolutely. And again, if so, there are very, very few rare chances if somebody is stuck up on the fact that I can only be right, there's nothing for us to do with them at all. Then, <laughs> you know, if somebody believes that there's only one way of doing it, then, you know, go ahead and do it. Why do you even need someone like us? 100%. Sachem, there's been a lot of change lately, and we talked about earlier on a little bit about the, the layoffs, but there's also been the rise of AI. There's a, a bunch of things that have gone on in the world recently that are continuing to go on. The economy, we've got trouble in Europe. All these things are starting to play on people's minds. And I get the sense in terms of the economic brunt that most of this has been centered in the United States as of late in terms of the impact on designers and product people. But that, that is also as evidenced by layoffs here in New Zealand for example, with Zero and some other companies, that's starting to be felt more broadly across the world as companies start to reevaluate how they staff their organizations and what they're focusing on. So given what's going on, what do you feel is an important question or questions that we should be asking ourselves in this moment in time as a field? I think I had a different answer before AI kind of became so front and common. I, I, I would say, uh, the answer I would give last year this time, I would say, or my perspective last year this time was the next decade is is all about digitization. One thing that uh, the pandemic did was put it front and center for all of us and say, hey, how is education going to be digitized? How is legal going to be digitized? Why does someone, you know, how is uh, healthcare going to be digitized? And then you start now today, a telehealth call, people are more, much more comfortable with it. I still think education and legal are behind. And that same way, agriculture, there's so many domains that have... To, so I think digital was going to be the forte and therefore our profession was going to still continue to be a, an awesome profession for the next decade. With AI, uh, I think a lot has adjusted. Now, I think we, what we need to do is at the insight I shared early on that our profession is getting hyper-commoditized. And I think AI is going to accelerate that like the, the heck, right? I mean, literally... I mean, again, there is crappy experiences today, but AI is the, the synthetic user data. But I can just ask AI, like, hey, what does, you know, somebody who's 30 years old or 40 years old living in a certain area, in a certain demographic, what are some of their biggest pain points? And synthetic AI can come back to me with insights. Now, in a brainstorming session, I have, and we, we call it chatty, chat GPT, is now a, a variable that we can ask a question and say, hey, what ideas do you have for this particular, how might be or what if? And I'll get few ideas any time of the day uh, at any uh, you know perspective I want. So there's a lot of power that's kind of coming together. There's smart system that is available right now. Now with this, we need to make sure that we, again, we work and I, I would treat AI as a technology. I would not treat it like something that's... And this technology is powerful. It's here. People are using it. But 
if we keep focusing on the user, their pain points, their experiences, and then their design, and AI becomes one part of it, it actually will open up a lot of more opportunities for all of us. And we are designers of businesses, if especially if as we are starting to look into the technology industry right now, then actually designers of a screen, as I said, the screen level, another give, give or take another few years, that will actually be all taken over by the commoditized AI that will come back to you. In fact, Prasad, uh, my brother, actually is running some very aggressive experiments right now uh, in terms of taking a user and their needs and then give, feeding it into an AI system. Unfortunately, it's broken right now. And then and mid-journey giving you screens for a landing page for them. So there's a lot of those nuances that are quickly kicking in. But again, we'll, let's treat AI and everything else that's happening uh, in the technology world as a, t- a technology issue. And then it still has a lot more options. If you know your users, you know the pain points and talking about the whole world at, at this point, there's a lot of lifestyle uh, problems that we are all solving. I think we should get away from the lifestyle problems and get to life problems. Poverty is still an issue. Inequality is still an issue. Education is still an issue. Why do people fight when they think that it's us versus them? When you start bringing us all together in a common purpose and common conversation and everything else, that's kind of where technology and, and the system and users have pain points that way. So again, the world is much more flatter than it is. And then I think design and on, and we as innovators, as I said, can look at all of those opportunities. And then we can now leverage the power of technology and get there. Uh, and you know, if somebody can literally take a picture of a scar on their skin and then quickly get adjusted and say like whether that is, or quickly get diagnosed, whether that's a issue they should worry about and they should not worry about, that's a life problem that I think we should solve. And there's a lot of, there's a whole design to that. How do you do that? Multi-language, multi-culture. There's still a, you know, about 6 billion people that are uh, not living in the Western Hemisphere. And uh, and those people are willing to spend the time for their life problems. And I think there's a lot of opportunity. And I still think digital and these advent of these new technologies will only make it better if we know what we are doing and what problems we are solving. Sachem, those are some important, some big thoughts, some challenging thoughts for us to think about. I've really enjoyed today's conversation. It's been really important to discuss how design, business and technology intersect. Thank you for so generously sharing your stories and insights with me today. Likewise, uh, Brendan, it was an awesome conversation and I hope uh, you know this at least changes a few, has a butterfly effect somewhere in the process, but I'm looking forward to it. And if anyone ever wants to connect with me, they can always reach out to me on LinkedIn or just send me an email. Perfect. Thank you, Sachem. And to everyone that's tuned in, it's been great to have you here as well. Everything we've covered will be in the show notes, including where you can find Sachem and all of the things that we've spoken about. If you've enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX research, product management, and design, don't forget to leave a review. Those are really helpful. Subscribe so the podcast turns up every two weeks and tell someone else about the show if you feel that they would get value from these conversations at depth. If you want to reach out to me, you can find my LinkedIn profile at the bottom of the show notes or just type in Brendan Jarvis to LinkedIn and you'll find me there. Or you can head on over to my website, which is thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Keep being brave.